Would you open your Bibles to our text this morning, which is Matthew chapter 27? Matthew chapter 27. This week we continue with the account of our Lord's arrest and trial and crucifixion. Lord willing, on Easter Sunday we will have our last sermon on the Gospel of Matthew as we come to the account of the resurrection of our Lord. But here we are in the middle of the arrest and the trial and then the crucifixion of our Lord. And it is a sobering and a very, very awful story. This week, last week, we saw the end of uh, Judas who gave himself to betraying his master. And when he realized his terrible blood guilt, he confessed it, but not to God, but rather to the religious leaders. They were no help to him. They said to him, what is that to us? That's your problem. And then he went through the money in the temple that he had gotten for the betrayal, and he went and killed himself. This week we pick up with the guilt of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor there in Jerusalem at the time, and also the guilt of an ethnic group that we know today as Jews. I want to say to you right at the beginning, this is an anti-Semitic sermon. It is not politically correct. But if you try to deny what Scripture teaches you today... You are doing it because you do not want to look at your own heart and recognize your sin before God. It's not because you love Jews. It's not because you don't want to have another Holocaust. It's because you and I always want to justify ourselves. And if you look at the children that we raise, we're raising children who are taught to justify themselves. If your husband tries to discipline your children, what do you do? You justify your children. Right? This is our nature. And so it's not really that America today has finally come to the point where we love Jews. That's what in our conceit we'd like to tell ourselves. But the real issue is we don't want to face our own guilt before God, and so we want to minimize other people's guilt. So at the very beginning, I want to say this is an anti-Semitic sermon. Now, you think, really? And I say, chill out, give the Word of God that I will proclaim to you room to breathe. Remember Thoreau and Walden? You know, talk across the pond. Okay, give the Word some room. Give the Word of God this morning room to work on your heart. And then at the end, come back and ask yourself whether I am anti-Semitic as you understood that. Ask yourself whether the Word of God is anti-Semitic. And I think you'll have an understanding of what it is that I'm saying and saying this is an anti-Semitic sermon. Let us hear the word of God as it's recorded in Matthew 27, 11 to 26. This is God's word and it is eternally true. Now Jesus stood before the governor, this is Pilate, and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, 
So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he, Pilate, said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Are you sure? Are you sure? Now, as we study this 27th chapter of Matthew, take careful note of the guilt of the whole world. The whole world. Matthew records the simple truth that everyone had their own sin as the perfect lamb of God suffered and died. Peter, James, and John slept when Jesus needed them. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Peter denied Jesus three times. The other disciples abandoned Jesus. The chief priests, scribes, and leading elders worked hard to get false witnesses who could justify a death sentence. And they slapped Jesus, punched him, and spat on him. Many Jews came forward and gave false testimony against him. And now the guilt of the Jewish leaders, but also the guilt of the Jewish people, the masses, and the guilt of the Roman ruler Pilate come forward. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Now, from historians, we know that this scene of Jesus being accused before the Roman ruler, the governor Pilate, did not take place in private. It was no secret conclave held by invitation only, but it was out in the open. Likely, this trial, for that is what it was, this trial was held on a raised platform outside Pilate's place of residence, readily accessible to the Jewish crowds we read had come out in force to support their leaders in their demand that Jesus be found guilty. And with verse 11, we pick up the account of this trial of Jesus, and it's much different from trials today. Pilate was the sole judge, and there was no right of trial by a jury of one's peers. Rome's governor held the power of judgment and sentence all in his own hands. But clearly the process had few protections for the innocent. True, Pilate gives the accused an opportunity to answer the charges he faces. Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate asked him what? He said, are you the king of the Jews? And this indicates the charge that the Jewish leaders had settled on as the crime most likely to lead to the Roman governor's condemnation and execution of Jesus. 
You remember last week we saw that they spent a lot of time developing charges that they could take before the Roman authority. And so we see that at the center of the charges they settled on was this charge that Jesus was the king of the Jews. In the parallel account found in Luke, we read Luke 23:2, And they began to accuse him, Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so, filling out the details, Luke records that their accusation that Jesus claimed he was the king of the Jews included the supporting accusations that he was fomenting rebellion against Rome by commanding the Jews not to pay the taxes that the Roman emperor had commanded. And so Jesus was accused of leading a tax revolt as part of a larger revolt against Rome's authority, the occupying force. And they said Jesus was claiming authority over Judea himself. He was, they claimed, telling people that he himself was the king of the Jews. Now, where in the book of Matthew is Jesus called the king of the Jews? Well, the only place where he's directly called the king of the Jews, other than starting here at the end of the book, is in the beginning of the book. And it wasn't by Jews, but it was by Gentiles. In Matthew 2, 2, you remember the wise men came seeking Jesus. And we read in the second verse of chapter 2 that they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, though, the Jews themselves accused Jesus of claiming this title for himself. Now, was it true that Jesus had done so, that he had called himself the king of the Jews? Well, not really. Um, And yet, if you look at the account of the triumphal entry, what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, what you'll find at the center of that account is that Matthew says all of this, and all of this means Jesus getting on the donkey... Jesus coming into town, Jesus receiving the adulation of the people, uh, the cloaks thrown down on the ground in front of him as he rode, the palm fronds, that all of this was to be understood as a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. All right, And here's the Old Testament prophecy that Matthew says is being fulfilled by Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. This took place, we read in Matthew 21, Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now here's the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king. Behold, your king is coming to you. So if Matthew says Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, receiving the adulation of the people, is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, behold, your king is coming to you, then... Is it true that you could accuse Jesus of being the king of the Jews? Surely this appeared to be Jesus allowing the Jewish people to treat him as if he were the king of the Jews. As Matthew records, it was this fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And yet there was a sense in which Jesus was and Jesus was not the king of the Jews. In Matthew 26:64, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. With Judas, when Judas betrayed him and looked at him and said, 
Is it me? We read in, in, in Matthew 26:25, Judas, who's betraying him, said in the upper room at the table, he said, surely it's not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. So Jesus was in the habit of giving what you could call a diffident or a cryptic response to questions where what? Well, in this case, to a question where the answer yes would have been wrong and the answer no would have been wrong. In other words, if Jesus just said, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, yes. What would Pilate understand? What Pilate would understand was that Jesus was saying that he was there to displace the Roman emperor, the Roman empire, to displace Pilate in leading as a civil authority. That's what Pilate would have understood. It's certainly what was understood earlier when all the children, the little infants, were killed. All right? And so he couldn't really just say point blank yes, because he would have been misleading Pilate, but he couldn't say no, because he was the king of the Jews. All right. If we go to the parallel account in the Gospel of John, the 18th chapter, beginning with verse 33, we read a little bit more, a few more of the details of this exchange between Jesus and Pilate. There we read, therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered what? You remember this. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And so this is why I say that Jesus' response to this question is, is cryptic. Um, it's, it's sort of yes and sort of no. It's not maybe, but it's, 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 it's neither a clear yes or a clear no. Now, this leaves Pilate in an awkward position. His judgment, based on Jesus' response, could go either way. Verse 11 of our text, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And then we read, while he was being accused, verse 12, by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Verse 14, He did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Initially, Jesus responded in a cryptic way, and then he became silent. Now, the minute you read this, you hear it, you should think that's a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy because you love Scripture, because you love God, and because God has, has, has been pleased to give you his word. And so you love his word, and you know his word backwards and forwards. And so when I'm preaching about Jesus being silent, immediately you're thinking Isaiah 53. Immediately. Everyone here, right? And you're all thinking, Isaiah 53, 7, a prophecy about Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. <clears throat> This whole thing is really precious. 
It's just precious. And I'm being facetious. I mean, this is rich. This is sweet. I mean, think about this. The Jewish religious leaders are accusing Jesus of not properly respecting the Roman authority. Can't you just imagine, you know, over in Iraq, you know, they want to get rid of one of their own, so they bring them before, you know, into the green zone, you know, before whatever tribunal the American military has. And this man, you know, claims that he's the king of Iraq, you know. And, uh, you know, so the Iraqis are really concerned that some man is setting himself up, what, against the American occupying force? I mean, it's precious. Do you get my point? Everything about these guys is completely hypocritical, completely deceptive, and Pilate despised them. Later in the text we read that Pilate knew it was all happening because of envy. (laughs) Okay? So... In other words, the Jews weren't fooling fooling anybody. Pilate knew they didn't want to keep him in power or the Roman emperor in power. Pilate knew they weren't concerned that the Roman Empire wasn't collecting as much taxes as they might. It was just absurd. It was ridiculous. But it's always been the case that the godly are understood in the context of the sins of the ungodly. So, for instance, today, if you speak up in defense of unborn children in a nation that's drowning in the blood of those children, what immediately does everybody assume about you? They assume that you're a Republican and that the entire reason that you're speaking up for the unborn children is because you want Republicans to be returned to power. And this is a demonstration of the old adage that a thief thinks everyone steals. People whose entire life is here and now accuse other people of having their entire lives here and now. And if their whole goal is political power and authority, which is clearly what the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees their whole life was, had nothing to do with godliness and eternity, then they accuse Jesus of having his whole life here and now. So you speak up on the issue, any issue that's fought over in America today in the culture wars, and what that indicates is that you want political power for yourself. If I preach about it today, it's because I'm the king of the Christians, and I want the Republicans returned to power. I don't give a rip, except insofar as I care about the unborn children. But they can't hear that. It's because I want political power. You know, I'm, I'm a white man, and I want to return to the hegemony that I've had for the last three centuries. Right? Remember, a thief thinks everyone steals. You'll know an awful lot about a man based on the false accusations he makes because what he accuses others of doing is what is really true of himself. <laughs> okay? A thief thinks everyone steals. So what do they accuse Jesus of? Of the thing they themselves are guilty of, which is what? Not wanting to pay the taxes to the Roman Empire and wanting themselves to hold the authority. Wanting to get rid of the occupying force. All right. Now let's move on. We now read, here Pilate is, and he's in front of a people group. And the people group, are Jews. Can I say that, please? Can I say it, please? 
Is it okay? It's Jews. All right. And if you look at the account, you're going to see that nationality and race and ethnicity are bound into the historical account. All right. There's no way to escape it. That's why I say read primary sources. But you can't even read primary sources anymore because oftentimes the, the translation of the primary sources is corrupted by political correctness today. All right? And so again, I'm going to say to you, Pilate is a Roman governor and he is facing a particular people group, a particular ethnicity, and it's the Jews. Now, just to prove to you that I'm capable of a little self-awareness, I will tell you that I have, like, Scotch-Irish blood in me, okay? And Scottish men are tight wads. Any Scottish men here? Are you a tight wad? Yeah, David. Carol, I don't know. Are you? No. Okay. Well, you're the exception that proves the rule. Have you ever gone out on a date and gone, Dutch, Dutch are tight wads. All right, now I'm trying to come up with negative traits. There's something about the Dutch I like, which is they're clean. All right, and certain ethnicities aren't clean, but we won't talk about that. Let's just talk about being tight wads. What I'm trying to get you to do is to acknowledge that all of us have perfect vision when we tell our jokes and listen to our comedians about the identity of certain ethnic groups. Our jokes depend on it. All our jokes depend upon generalizations and stereotypes. And generalizations are generalizations because they're generally true. All right? Okay, if you hear a Cockney accent in a British movie, you immediately are supposed to think that the person is uneducated and picks their nose in public. All right? And if you hear a sophisticated, like, Knightsbridge accent, you're supposed to understand that this person has good breeding. And a lot of the humor of England depends upon class prejudice. Now, people... This is who you are, not just me. It's who you are. And so we need to enter into the text of Scripture today being willing to see the, the nature of Jews. And the Holocaust should not cause us to go back and amend the original sources, the primary sources. So now, Pilate has in front of him not just any man, but Jesus, and not of any ethnicity, but of the Jewish ethnicity. In other words, Jesus is a Jew, and Jesus is before him, and he's accused of things that will lead to capital punishment. And it says to us that Pilate is astonished. Verse 14, the governor was quite amazed. Now, why was the governor amazed? The governor was amazed because he had in front of him a Jew who was quiet. A Jew who was at a loss for words. If you've been around our token Jew, Bob Kapowitz at all, you know that there are times in Bob's life 
where, and in fact, it happens all the time. If you've been to dinner at his house, it'll happen a couple of times in a meal, where Bob will say something, and the men of the house will blush and smile and not translate him. <laughs> right, Lucas? Right, John? And I'm always curious, particularly at that point, to know what Bob said. Bob is not at a loss for words, right? And here Pilate had in front of him a Jew who was silent. And Pilate had not had that as his normal experience of the Jews. They were a fractious, verbal people. And in fact, I love Jews, and that's one of the principal things I love about them, because they're fractious and verbal, and that's what I am. All right? Not only that, but he's accused of something that will lead to his death, and he's silent. He's silent. It is amazing to Pilate. And so Pilate tries to prod him out of his silence and to get him talking. Now, why did Pilate do that? Pilate did that because if you don't have attorneys, if you don't have provide counsel for, for the accused, if all the other apparatus that we have in the courts today to assure that the innocent are not condemned, all right, was not present, if Pilate's the whole shebang, Whatever legitimacy that process has depends upon the accused defending himself. And so if the accused will not defend himself, it is very embarrassing to Pilate. And we all know what's coming with Pilate. You don't even need to know the end of the story to know where Pilate's going to end up, right? I mean, this is like a movie that has all kinds of, what's the literature expression, all kinds of foreshadowing, thank you. You know, there's all kinds of foreshadowing, even his wife warning him. You know what's coming, right? You know the end of the story. And so what we have here is Pilate trying to get him to speak up at his own defense. Pilate tries to get the Jews to choose Barabbas. Pilate tries again and again and again to get out of what inevitably is going to happen, which is he will condemn Jesus. All right? But Jesus is not going to help him, and so the trial becomes even more of a show trial. It's, it's, all, it's all corrupt. Everything about it is corrupt. And then we have this insertion about this little thing about Barabbas. Now, who is Barabbas? Verse 15, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, the Greek for notorious doesn't have the pejorative uh, content that we have the word notorious. Barabbas was probably somebody that the people loved, a Robin Hood figure. He was guilty, but he was probably very popular with the people. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, putting out Barabbas and putting out Jesus, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. In other words, Pilate believed that if he gave a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, they'd choose Jesus. And he had good reason to think this, not the least of which was Jesus' triumphant entry. All right? Jesus was very popular, and Pilate knew this. All right? And so the feast was Passover. They were holding a notorious prisoner, Barabbas, and... Pilate gives them a choice. Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? In Matthew 15, 6 and 7, we read a little bit more of, 
about this man Barabbas. There we read the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So it seems Barabbas was guilty of sedition and murder. In other words, Barabbas was truly what they were accusing Jesus of being, a man seeking to overthrow Rome and a man who had committed murder doing it. So it's reasonable for Pilate to think that if he gives them a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, they're going to choose Jesus. Because Barabbas was really what they were accusing Jesus of being. It's all very, very hypocritical. Jesus is accused of leading an insurrection against Rome, but it's false. And yet in bloodlust, the people cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Barabbas is accused of leading an insurrection against Rome. The accusation is true, and they cry out for his release. Verse 17, so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they handed him over. Note, it is the people, Pilate asks. He knew of the envy of Jesus' popularity that the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief elders had against Jesus. But you know what they also envied Jesus for? They envied Jesus because of his holiness. Okay? envied him because of his holiness. Because what is the legitimacy of a religious leader but holiness? In other words, if a religious leader is corrupt, he has absolutely no authority. If a civil authority is corrupt, who cares? I mean, you know, you have this constant uh, discussion of what is an impeachable offense. I'm not sure that there is any impeachable offense because... People take vows all the time to uphold the Constitution, and then they destroy it by every decision they make in the Supreme Court. I don't know, and they may, may not be every decision they make, but I mean, it's a joke. It's hypocrisy. You can, you can use the Oval Office for sex. You can lie. You can suborn perjury. You, can, you know, what is an impeachable offense in the civil authority? But the spiritual authority that does not protect the sheep, the spiritual authority that does not warn those that God threatens with judgment. The spiritual authority who has no fear of God. The spiritual authority who is jealous of the popularity of religious leader, not simply because they have the affection of the people, but also because they are holy. This is utterly, utterly bankrupt. And that's the religious leaders. But if we just agree to condemn the religious leaders and to look down on them. We haven't learned the lesson we have to learn today. And then in the middle of this scene, we have Pilate's wife showing up. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. And so the evidence is mounting, isn't it? You know, you've got Judas testifying he was a righteous man. He was innocent. And then you have Pilate with a bad conscience. And then you have Pilate's wife showing up there through a messenger saying that God had revealed to her in a dream he was righteous and her husband better not get his innocent blood on his hands. It's interesting that at this point, um, one of the exhortations given by Bibles, uh, the men that love Scripture and have written about it, is that um, all of us should be very careful to warn the people that we know and love against the sin we see them committing. 
So it makes the point here that Pilate's wife loved him and warned him and tried to keep him from doing what he was doing. Have nothing to do with the righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of this. Church tradition tells us this woman became a believer, a professing Christian later, and in the Eastern Church she's beatified. She's, she's, she's known as a saint. All right. So again, Pilate found himself about to condemn a man who was not guilty of a crime he was accused of. He found himself about to bear the weight of condemning to death a guiltless man and therefore bearing the guilt of innocent blood. And the, Pilate did not want to bear this blood guilt, and he tried to get out of it. But verse 20 tells us, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor, Pilate, said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release from? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I... In other words, you see, but, but, then what shall I... Pilate is being led down the path. It's inexorable. And what we see on the part of Pilate is that he is a dead fish going with the tide. He has no power, no, no strength of character, no principle other than to please the people. He said, verse 23, Why, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, well, what was he trying to accomplish? He was trying to get Jesus off. And so when he realized that all his efforts to get Jesus off, they were producing nothing, When he saw that he was accomplishing nothing, verse 24, but rather that a riot was starting. Now, what was the worst thing that a Roman ruler could do? The worst thing he could do would be to allow a riot to develop. And so you may think that it would be a very simple thing for Pilate to find Jesus innocent and then to condemn to death the man who really wasn't an insurrectionist, who really had murdered, all right? But three years after this, Pilate was removed from his position of leadership because he was not kind enough to the Jews. The man above him condemned him because there was, there was, there was a, a ruckus, and Pilate was a little bit too cruel to the Jews, and, and a, a few of them got killed. And so the man above him went to the emperor and said, Pilate has failed, and Pilate was yanked because of the death of a few Jews. And so Pilate is in a difficult position because on the one hand, he has to protect the authority of Rome and and not allow an insurrectionist who had done murder, Barabbas, to go free and to do insurrection again, right, to lead an insurrection again. But on the other hand, he has to keep the Jews happy. All right? And so what does he do? When he saw that he was accomplishing nothing, verse 24, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, what? I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Now, was he innocent? It was a nice ritual, wasn't it? Was he innocent?
And then he says something that should bring an echo to your ears because it was said by the religious leaders when a man came to them with blood guilt. When Judas confessed his sin of having betrayed an innocent man, do you remember what the Jewish leaders said to him? See to that yourself. In other words, Judas, that's your problem. And that's exactly what Pilate is saying to the Jews now. This is your problem. I'm not responsible. He is responsible, isn't he? Pilate be able to stand before God and say, I washed my hands of that. Well, the very use of that expression idiomatically in English indicates to us, no, it doesn't. Anybody that says, well, I washed my hands of that, and you go, oh, you slime ball. <laughs> you know, that's how, it, that's how it works in our language today. I am innocent of this man's blood, seated at yourself, and all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Remember how I warned you at the beginning this is an anti-Semitic sermon? What did the people say? What did they say? Somebody say it out loud. And what else did they say? His blood be on us. Is that all? And on our children. Who were the people that said that? What ethnicity? And across 2,000 years of church history, how have Christians abused that? How have Christians abused that? Across 2,000 years of church history, Christians have abused that by demonizing the Jews. By saying the Jews have a unique guilt that we as Gentiles are not capable of. Do you understand that? And therefore, oppressing, killing, murdering, reducing to their ghettos a people group that are what? Worse than we are? Well, in one sense, yes, because theirs was the covenant. Theirs was the book. Theirs was the love of God. Theirs was every spiritual possession that was precious. But in another sense, why did God choose the Jews in the first place? Because they were no accounts, because they were the weakest and the stupidest and the poorest and the most disgusting. In their nakedness, in their blood, lying in a field of rocks with nobody to care for them. Now again, are the Jews somehow different than you and I are? Are they? Well, yes, they are. They talk a lot. And they're the bankers, like the, like the Chinese in Asia. They're the bankers. They do the movies, right? I mean, am I being anti-Semitic by saying these things? Every comedian knows it. <laughs> People, if we refuse to give the Jews the dignity of their ethnic moral agency, it's not because we love Jews. It's because we have mouths that never stop justifying ourselves and so we want to justify the jews that, do you understand that you know if we can remove their agency with jesus and his crucifixion then somehow we ourselves 
can remove our moral agency and our sins and and we can remove our children's when our husband tries to discipline them and make excuses for our children and the whole world has a mouth that won't stop I remember once, a number of years ago, in one of the churches I served, there was a woman who one night went after the boyfriend of her daughter with a gun and with her car and tried to kill him. I was on the phone with her. She was trying to kill this man. She was quite clear what she was doing. She had the gun next to her, and she was slamming her car into the other man's car at about 2.30 in the morning. Later, to keep her from being busted for multiple felonies, another pastor and an elder and I were wrestling with her, with her husband, to try to bring her under control. All right? No question attempted murder. Absolutely no question. None. And so after loving her and dealing gently with her, and I have no, mis- no question in my mind that when I was on the phone with her, I made a mistake by talking to her. I should have hung up immediately and called the police. Immediately. But, you know, you want to save your people from felonies and jail, especially mothers with lots of children. Right? And so as time went by, she came before the elders board to have a private rebuke. And do you know that that woman sat in that room and she did not shut her mouth defending herself and excusing herself and justifying herself. And she attacked and attacked and attacked the elders. Now, I ask you, how are the elders responsible for a gun being next to you and you trying to kill your daughter's boyfriend? I mean, what construction could make us responsible for that, you know, or slamming his car with your car, you know? And, you know, I could demonize her, but that's me. (laughs) You know, the police officer comes to my window and says, you were speeding. And I'm like, yes, but I'm going to a funeral. I'm going to a wedding or I'm a pastor or, you know, I know one of the appellate judges. You know, my cousin John used to be like the clerk to the Supreme Court justice. You know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm you were speeding. Yes, officer. I was speeding. Oh, that's hard. But. And so we have the Holocaust and we think that it's to dignify and treat with respect the Jews by now denying their moral agency at the time of Christ. And that's not dignity at all. It's patronization. Do you all understand this? And so everybody's like, well, you know, don't ever say anything about Jews. You know. And here the Bible says, the people said, his blood be on us and on our children. Do you understand that? And we say, well, yeah, but it wasn't really the Jews. It was the Jewish leaders. They're the ones that are responsible. So I'm reading a commentary, and it's by an evangelical who purportedly believes in the inspiration of Scripture, right? You know, you know, on this text, you know. And what could you imagine that a commentator who had been schooled in the only thing the universities school us in anymore, which is political correctness, 
What do you think he would say here? Reputable commentary. Here's what he says. This verse has been greatly misused through the centuries, being made a proof text to justify all manner of horrific practices against the Jews. True? True. Fair enough. But we should bear in mind that this was no more than a thoughtless assumption of responsibility by an unruly mob. Oh, I'm so reassured. I feel so much better about it. That's patronization. That's paternalism. That's refusing to give moral agency to the Jews. They called it on themselves. Because... It's been abused for our sins as Gentiles does not mean that we then deny what they did. Now let me ask you, if the Holy Spirit says the Jews, not the Jewish leaders, the Jews, if the Holy Spirit inspires the word the Jews, eudaioi, okay, if that's what the Holy Spirit inspires, and we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable... How dare we change it? What is profitable about having the Holy Spirit cause the people to be moral agents and not just their leaders? And if you open up this Bible, which is not a Bible, and it's not even a good commentary, it's not even a good secondary source because it's corrupted by political correctness, both at the point of sexuality and at the point of ethnicity, So it can't be accused of being insensitive. All right. And if you open it up, what you find is in John chapter 19, beginning with verse 7, the text says what? The text of Greek says that the Jews replied, by our laws he ought to die. But this one says the Jewish leaders replied. Now what's the Greek? The Greek is not Jewish leaders. There's a way of saying Jewish leaders. The text doesn't say Jewish leaders. It says Jews. But the New Living Translation says Jewish leaders. Well, let's all give you Jewish. You know, let's have a kinder, gentler scripture. And let's have all of you read the kinder, gentler one, because it'll be so much easier for you to become Christians. And our church will be so much bigger if we don't make an issue of, this is like making a mountain out of moho, you know. This is such a little thing, and people are sensitive to this. We live in a post-Holocaust world. Anti-Semitism is a terrible thing. The whole world today is a morality play against anti-Semitism. And there will be more people in the pews, and I'll be a better leader. And maybe I can then get invited to conferences where celebrities are and be a famous preacher and get books published. In fact, maybe I can get some of the royalties off that Bible. I mean, people, this is how it all works. It's how it worked at the time of Christ. It's how it works today. It's always how it's worked. Just take a little, trim a little bit of the edge of God's truth, just enough to show that you're a reasonable man. And that's what Paul went around doing from city to city. You know, he went around this city and that city, showing people that he was a reasonable man. He wasn't a zealot. He was quite reasonable. And that's why they always loved him so much and gave him the key to the city. (laughs) now listen I read you one here's another again John 19 verse 12 then Pilate tried to release him 
but the word is eudaioi, but the NLT says the Jewish leaders told him. It's not Jewish leaders, it's the Jews. All right. And then in verse 14, again, it says what? It says, it was now about noon of the day of preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the Jews, but the NLT print translates it, Pilate said to the people. (laughs) Come on, we should be giggling at this point. It's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. After all, evangelists believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. This means every single word, not the concepts behind the words, but the words. Now, have I made my point? Let's respect Jews. Let's respect the Dutch. Let's respect Scottish people. Let's respect Hispanics. Let's respect Roman Catholics and give them the dignity of accusing them of heresy. And have them accuse us. I love Roman Catholics that accuse me of heresy. I do. And I accuse them of heresy. I have a friend that runs a national ministry on WETN, a friend from seminary. And we were having a wonderful conversation one day, and we agreed that we would like to have a national program that was opposing evangelicals and Catholics together, the love fest of ambiguity, all right? And that our program, our program would be that the two of us would be quite cordial with one another on television accusing one another of heresy. And then he gives me the dignity of my faith. And I give him the dignity of his error. (laughs) And yet you're so much a product of postmodern culture that everything's personal. Well, Tim must not have had his mama love him. No, 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 no. It's principle. All right. And here's the deal, guys. Listen. If you do not accept the text of Scripture where it says the Jews called out crucify him. On Good Friday, when I look at you and I say, who crucified Jesus? You know what you're going to say? You're not going to say I did or we did. (laughs) Do you know what you're going to say to me? You're going to look at me and you're going to say, You did, you slime ball. And all that translation has done is traded on the political prejudice of American culture that leaders and authorities are slime balls. And so it's just traded one victim for another of the people's prejudice. If it translates Jews as Jewish leaders, that's fine. You can look at me on Good Friday and say, you're the Jewish leader today. You killed him. And it's true enough, but you've escaped your own agency. Which is, had you been there that day, you would have been a covenant child. You would have been in the crowd, and you would have cried out, crucify him. And it is essential that you see your agency in the Jews. Nobody's doing you any favor blaming the leaders Because you hate leadership. You hate authority. But when the people, the democratic, the glorious, the glorious people are recorded. And you know it doesn't record one single voice speaking up counter 
to the Jews, not one. Do you know who defends Jesus there? It's the Roman governor. People, listen. There's absolutely no way that you can come to Jesus Christ except on your face in front of him. You are a murderer. You have blood on your hands. You are complicit in the death of unborn children. You play games that the entire center of that game is bloodshed. You watch movies of bloodshed. You have no ability today to even feel shame and horror at bloodshed. You wouldn't bother washing your hands. This is you. And if you start patronizing the Jews because you don't want to be anti-Semitic and patronizing women because you don't want to be sexist and a misogynist, it's not because you care about the Jews and women. It's because you refuse to face your guilt before God. That's why it is. You are hopeless. You are not righteous. Every time your mouth opens up, it is justifying your wicked heart. Here's what Romans 3 says about you. Speaking of the Jews, it says their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, anybody know the Bible? Anybody love God? Anybody love his word? As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Do you seek for God? Do you seek for God? The Bible says none. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Do you do good? Do you do good? No. Everyone say it. No, I don't. No. Say it. No. Say it. No. Do you do good? No, you don't. There is not even one, not one. Their throat is an open grave. Say it. My throat what? Your throat is an open grave. With your tongues you keep deceiving. Say, with my tongue I what? I keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under what? Your lips. Say, my lips. My lips. Okay? Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And you say... Oh, no, I don't curse. What is your mouth full of? Cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Oh, no, no, I'm down picketing at Planned Parenthood, not me. What are your feet swift to do? Shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is you. And you say, why do you keep saying you? Oh, come on, people. (laughs) Why do I keep saying you? Because it's easy for you to believe a religious leader is like this. Any idiot knows this is me. 
But what about you, sweet mama? Honorable, self-controlled papa, elder, deacon. And now we know, it ends, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that, and if there's ever something that America needs today, it is this. America is just weary in hope and expectation that someday the time will come when what? So that every mouth may be closed. Finally. Finally. You know, all the people sit in psychiatrists' offices and talk about how their mama didn't love them. All the people that blame their fathers and all the people that complain about having had incest and rape and all the people that complain about being fired unjustly and all the people that get stopped for speeding that excuse themselves because they know a judge, you know, and all the people that say their dissertation committee was like, you know, stacked against them and they got part of departmental politics, you know, and all the people that say that, you know, the American people should buy American and that's why the big three went under and all the people that say the government should pay off, you know, their investments because they invested in good faith and all the, all the executives say that the contract was already in there prior to the government bailing it out. So they should be, and all the, all the journalists that point to everybody else and say they have problems and act as if they're objective in pointing out the problems. Yeah, right. And all the people that say they don't think it's, an, it's a life and so they should have the freedom to murder the unborn children. And all the people that say elderly people should be like kissed off and given morphine. And all the people that say they should be able to kill themselves and have a doctor's help. And all the people who say that unborn children aren't persons because people that talk loudly in restaurants using big words are what persons are. And it's clear unborn children can't talk loudly in restaurants using big words. Even Peter Singer will be shut up. God says, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. People, you will never know Jesus Christ and his mercy. And you will never have faith in him until you stop justifying ethnic groups and stop being sensitive and begin to see you for who you are. Not who your mom and dad are. Okay, sweetie? Okay? Not who your husband is. He is a slime ball. He is. Not who your wife is. Not who your preachers are. Not who the Jewish leaders are. Not who the Jews are, but the Gentiles. Not who the whites are, but the blacks. Okay? Not who the blacks are, but the whites. So that every mouth may be shut. And then it's just possible that you will be praying. And instead of being the one that says, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not black. I thank you that I'm not what? I thank you that I'm not a Jew. I thank you that I'm not anti-Semitic. <laughs> I thank you that I'm not sexist. I'm enlightened. Oh, yeah. You're the first person that ever loved his mother, right? <laughs> so that you... Instead of saying, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this scumbag over here, this tax collector. You will be the one who will say, have mercy 
upon me, a sinner. And do you know, he's the one who went away with his sins forgiven. So you know, I'm not anti-Semitic. I love Jews. And I don't want them killed. I don't want them smeared. Because I'm a Jew. In fact, I'm a Jewish religious leader. I hate holy people. Do you understand that? And so now you're free to admit who you are. You're free to only fear God. You don't have to fear the political correctness police police anymore. You don't have to fear anybody but God. But when you stand before Him, you better not lie. You better not say guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. You better zip it. You better shut up and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if you're a Jew, you better go to God and plead that he will not condemn your children because your ancestors said his blood will be on us and on our children. Why? Because that's your narrative. You know? Okay. Are you with me? Kind of? Sort of? Kind of? I am only speaking to you what Scripture says. Let's pray.